Welcome to the Pixels and in Ink podcast. This is the show where we bring you the best tips, tactics, and strategies for using multi-channel marketing to dramatically boost your leads and sales. From the top sales and marketing minds across agencies, print service providers, and enterprise marketers, you'll hear what's working and not working so you can be on the cutting edge without having to empty your wallet in the process. All right, here are your hosts, Mackenzie Farshid and Dave Rosendahl. Oh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Mackenzie, how are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I just love that intro. Yeah, just never gets old. I know I said that. Never gets old. So welcome, listeners. Uh, Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Stacey Griggs, who is the CEO of El Toro. And if you haven't heard of them, they are a Louisville, Kentucky-based ad tech company. Mm. And they've created a fascinating product that allows advertisers to serve targeted digital display and video ads in front of people. And they're targeted at a specific household or building. Yeah. So remember folks, we're in the middle of a series. Now this is the second and officially our first interview with some really incredible thought leaders who are going to be talking to us about how you can incorporate digital marketing and use these new tactics and techniques within a multi-channel campaign. So that you can achieve better results, whether that be generating more leads, ultimately more sales, getting more engagement with your prospects and customers. So, Dave, tell our listeners a little bit more about El Toro. Yeah, El Toro is a fascinating company, a really incredible interview today. And at the heart of it, what El Toro allows you to do is take a list. That could be a list that you're sending direct mail to, that you're sending emails to. And they will find the households uh, that are in that list and match them up to an IP address. So. Mm-hmm. The power that that brings us as marketers is that their technology then allows us to put ads in front of those individuals. So let's say we're sending a a direct mail campaign of 10,000 pieces that we might be able to find 5,000 households and match those up to specific IP addresses so that we can then put a banner or a display ad in front of that individual in advance of that direct mail piece hitting. Or even, as he says, you'll hear it, but even after the direct mail oh, yeah. So make sure to tune in today because he tells us something interesting is best practices about when you're doing your digital marketing in tandem with your direct mail, if you are happening to do direct mail campaigns. So he gives some best practices there. You want to make sure and tune in um, and listen for that. And one thing that's interesting is El Toro is 100% cookie-free. No cookies. No cookies. Oh, I like cookies. <laughs> so it's cutting edge. It's great. And, you know, it really allows one to serve marketing to the right person with the right message at the right time. Mm-hmm. And, and these these uh, ads are being put in front of people, uh, you know, real people. And so did, did we get into that discussion today around some of the fraud that's out there with uh, some of the advertising solutions that we might be using. And not only are we putting them in front of people at home or at work, but also in some really interesting locations that maybe you haven't thought of, listener. Uh, that you can use in your marketing. So we're going to get into that. It's really interesting. Yep. So it's pretty cool. The technology merges offline demographic data with online ads to show, like we said, this specific ad to the right people. So without further ado, I feel like we should just jump right in. Yeah, let's go talk to Stacey. All right. So hi, Stacey. Welcome to Pixels and Inc. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Mackenzie. How are you? Doing great. We generally like to start by asking our guests uh, to talk a little bit about themselves outside of work. So hobbies, family, interests, things like that. So I live in uh, just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I grew up here, but uh, moved to the East Coast for 15 years and about eight years ago decided to move back. And uh, we live on uh, what uh, most people would consider uh, a farm, but people around here would just call uh, a large piece of land. It's uh, <laughs> seven acres with uh, with, with no uh, no real uh, real farming interest on it, other than a couple dozen chickens. Um, I'm a volunteer firefighter in my free time, and uh, but you know, running a uh, running a uh, pretty fast growing uh, ad tech company uh, doesn't leave a lot of free time. What does a volunteer firefighter mean? So the community I live in is about 30,000 residents. That's uh, one county outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, we don't have uh, a large enough tax base to support a full-time fire department with uh, enough uh, personnel to be able to respond when someone calls 911. Uh-huh. Um, you know, actually, most, most communities in America are like this. Um, so what happens is we have a, uh, a paid crew that uh, there's somebody there uh, you know, 24-7, 365, and then uh, most of the rest of our people are volunteers. Wow. Um, so if you live if you live near me and you call 911, uh, there's a fire, uh, firehouse seven houses uh, down from me, and it's probably me that shows up in the fire truck. Um, so could you and, get called during the day? Good, like during the work day, you might get called uh, in? 
So we actually, uh, so the paid crew, we've got uh, one, one person there 24-7, 365. But then we also have three people there during the, you know, kind of general work hours, seven to seven weekdays. And the reason behind that is most of us have full-time day jobs. Yeah. Um, so it would be really difficult to rely on volunteers during the day in particular. So what we do is uh, we, we've got, uh, you know, kind of our paid resources uh, are, are, you know, there during the day uh, and focused. And then, you know, we rely uh, you know, very heavily on volunteers uh, nights and weekends. And, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm working from home and, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a fire run and I'm not otherwise doing something, I would make it. But, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of being a volunteer is that you make what you can. Uh, right. and, uh, and, you know, we should have enough volunteers to be able to, uh, staff a, uh, staff a fire if we need it. And, you know, the great thing about fire departments is they all work with each other. So if you see that you don't have enough resources, uh, mm-hmm. showing up for an individual fire or a car accident or whatever, you can call the neighboring fire department and, you know, they'll, uh, you know, they'll roll some, uh, engines to help you. And, you know, we do the same thing if they need help. So maybe if you grow El Toro large enough, then there'll be enough taxed, uh, on your company to pay for more full-time firefighters. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! I don't know that I'd be excited about paying that much. Tax. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, well, but, <laughs> it would uh, mean your yeah, company is yeah. much larger, I guess. It would mean that. <laughs> well, cool. We gave you um, kind of a an intro in the uh, in the beginning of today's podcast, Stacy. But I'd love to hear from you. You know, tell us a little bit about what led you to start El Toro, and kind of in layman's terms, what brought you to that to the idea, and and how did you find the need for what you're doing now? Sure. So my uh, my background is uh, I've built and sold a number of tech companies before this, and um, I sold my last company to a publicly traded telecommunications firm. Um, was working for them, not particularly happy being part of a large publicly traded company, and wanted to find something uh, entrepreneurial to do again. So I, I told my uh, my overlords at the company that I was working for that I was going to leave, put something on LinkedIn, and started talking to friends that had ideas, that had startups, and. I ran into a friend of mine that uh, was uh, working on the concept of IP targeting and uh, came over and spent a week looking at what he had and thought it was a fantastic idea. And I had been a fairly high-end user of uh, digital marketing in the past. I'd worked uh, in one of my positions. We were spending well into six figures a month on digital marketing. And I was always frustrated by, you know, what I was buying were, were impressions and clicks. And, mm-hmm. and click-through rate and cost per click. But, you know, there, there was very little attribution. There was very little way to say, I drove this person to my website. They didn't buy from my website. They didn't buy from me immediately. Uh, but later on, they called a sales rep or they, you know, did something else, had some other interaction that subsequently led to them buying. Well, how do I know how I got that lead? Uh, you know, so, you know, I knew from a, from a you know, data perspective that we were overstating, you know, things like, um, you know, organic and, and we were overstating direct traffic because there's some reason those people found out about us. But, you know, taking a tool like IP targeting where we can just target a list of people that clients give us or just target other lists that, uh, you know, whether it's a CRM or a direct mail file and be able to target some small portion of that list, call it, you know, 40, 50, 60% of that list, and then be able to use the other half of the list that, you know, were, that had the same demography, the same propensity to buy, and say the people we targeted were 60% more likely to buy. They spent 10% more, and this is a statistically valid sample size. That right. gives that gives clients a lot of uh, visibility into, you know, things like uh, ROI or even better what I like to call ROAS, um, you know, and I think uh, good advertisers are, are going to start evolving to measuring ROAS, return on ad spend, as their primary metric across all channels because, you know, once you've got, you know, addressable digital like we have, it, it becomes a very easy way to measure any sort of non-branding uh, campaign. So, Stacy, let's take one step back here and just, just kind of describe for the listener what is the process of IP targeting and kind of at a high level, what are the steps that I go through and what's the outcome that I ultimately achieve with that? Sure. Um, so that's a great question. And, uh, and, and what we've done is we've, we've mapped IP addresses to physical addresses. And those physical addresses can be homes. They can be businesses. They can be uh, uh, venues. Uh, a venue could be a hotel or a, a convention center. 
And then what uh, the way our clients would use that, or the way our partners would use that, is uh, is you know say I've got this uh, group of people I want to communicate with. And a great example is I, I was talking to a client of ours this morning that wants to target uh, attendees at the Hims uh, Medical Conference next month. Okay. And uh, and we, we we will probably have two or three clients targeting attendees at Hims, and we've mapped the IP addresses for the hotels at Hims. We've mapped the IP addresses for the conference center at Hims, and we'll be able to target people that are staying in those hotels and that are on the Wi-Fi at those at that convention center just during the days of Hims. And you know that's what we call our our venue targeting product. Um, but the same thing works in B two C or B two B that you know a client will come to us and say I've got this. CRM of a hundred thousand people that bought Toyotas, you know, and their leases are expiring within the within the next ninety days, and we know that their current lease payments are over three hundred dollars. So a, a fantastic campaign to them would be uh, lease a new Toyota Camry for you know two seventy nine a month. Um, you know, something like that, because you're using what you know about them. They own a Toyota Camry. They are paying more than $300 a month. And, you know, if you show them a, an ad that says you can get a brand new Camry, you can trade in your lease and get a brand new Camry for less than you're paying today, that's that's uh, that's a really effective message. And that starts to get into what I like to call mass personalization. You take a group of people that all fall in the same category, and then you can personalize ads to them very simply, but also protect personal and uh, personal information and PII. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, one of the things I saw, I don't know if it was on your guys' blog or someone else's blog, but we were talking, they were talking about your product and it's like your neighbor might not be as similar as you are. You know, so a lot of times in uh, marketing, people market to a group of people, let's just say a group of people in this neighborhood or something like that. But when you're able to actually take it down to the housing level, you can talk, for example, maybe you have uh, these people have Toyota Camrys, whereas the neighbor doesn't have that same demographic profile, the same buying, um, you know, decisions and things like that. And so when you can take it down to the individual house level and show them something, I mean, that just takes, you know, personalization to a whole nother level. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. And one of the things that, uh, you know, that we kind of espouse with clients, you know, the, the, the kind of first generation of IP targeting uh, when, you know, other companies were, were doing this was, you know, getting down to a, a zip code or a zip plus four or a zone of people. And, you know, the reality is, you know, your, your neighbors are very different than you. They might vote differently. They might have different cars. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they traditionally have, you know, somewhat homogenous incomes in a, in a neighborhood. But outside of income and house value, there's not a lot that you might have in common with your neighbor. And, and you know, being able to leverage, you know, the, uh, you know, the offline intelligence that resides in CRM and uh, data providers like uh, Axiom and Experian and be able to then move that into a digital realm is extraordinarily powerful. So Stacy, let's just uh, break that down just a little bit more. So I'm, I've got my list of, let's say the hundred thousand that you mentioned, I have sent it uh, up into El Toro and it comes back and says, as an example, 40,000 people out of that list match. Uh, we have IPs. And now tell the listener what happens from there. So uh, what would one of those people in that group of 40,000, what would he or she experience if they're being touched by your, by your service? So typically we, we, we run two types of ads uh, on behalf of our clients, either uh, display ads. So those are the ads that you might see at the top or right-hand side of any of a number of web pages. We've mm-hmm. built in with over 30 different ad networks so that you know those ads could be on ESPN.com, FoxNews.com, uh, on a Facebook mobile app. You know, they, they can really be in, in well over 90% of the available uh, spots on the Internet. Uh, the other types of ads we run are what are called video mid-roll and pre-roll. Uh, and a mid-roll or pre-roll ad, uh, pre-roll is when you see a video, when you're watching a video and you're forced to watch a video before that video that uh, you might be able to skip after 5 or 15 seconds. Uh, uh, we don't like to use the word force, though. You're you're offered a, a video, right? <laughs> Something of value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, yeah, you're offered a video by some insightful and kind advertiser. Exactly. Uh, yeah, of that, course. That, that's play, play, placed through an industry-leading platform, of course. Uh, and to be fair, know, since it's dangerous, then it's probably really personal to them and something that they, yeah. they could benefit from. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's the thing. I mean, there's, actually, uh, there, there's actually a lot of data that says if you put the right ad in front of people, they're not as irritated by it. 
That's you know, right. If you put an ad, if, you know, I live in Kentucky. I uh, I like bourbon. Uh, if you put an ad in front of me for some fantastic bourbon that I'm interested in, I'm probably going to be much more likely to be interested in that ad than if you put an ad in front of me for some sort of gin, which I don't drink at all. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if you look at if you look at just online data at behavioral data, you know, I would probably be put in a bucket of people that you know that you know drink some sort of hard spirits. So I get all of these ads on other platforms using other tools for gin and vodka and you know all these things that I would never drink. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, using our platform, if you said I, I have this list of people that I know are bourbon, you know, bourbon aficionados, let's put the right ad in front of the right person at the right time. Yep. So now we've got that ad in, let's say it's on the top of CNN or Fox News, and so I'm in that list of forty thousand. I happen to be on CNN or Fox News. And I see that ad there, that ad impression. Let's say I click on it. What are you typically seeing folks do to interact with me once I've clicked on that impression? Well, so there's really two things that happen when you see the ad. Um, We find that about 50% of the people that end up buying from our clients never Mm -hmm. actually click on the ad. They do what's called a view through. They see the ad. The ad influences them. It causes them to do what you wanted them to do in the ad. It's just they don't click on ads. Uh, so you know they they you know they they see if it's Toyota they would say oh well I'm going to go to Toyota.com or if it's Toyota of the Redlands they're going to go to Toyota of the Redlands.com uh, and that'll look uh, you know on your on your online data that will be misclassified as either search or direct traffic um, but uh, you know so that's you know that's what part of them do uh, people that click through obviously we have more control over their experience because we can we can take them to some uh, you know more specific landing page versus it's just the home page when they click through. So, you know, typically, you know, if you're talking about automobiles, it's all about taking that person that is in market and convincing them to get in the showroom. Uh, you know, so you want to show them the best possible deal on, on a vehicle and get them get them into that showroom as fast as possible because if they're really in market, they're probably not going to be in market a week or two from now. Um, so it, it's all about, you know, getting them, you know, getting them excited about that vehicle, getting them uh, engaged with the opportunity at that, you know, local dealership, and then getting them to come into that dealership. Awesome. So one of the things you said is, you know, only 50% of the people actually click on that ad. So talking now about your customers, let's say they're marketing to these people, what sort of data do you give your customers that shows them, hey, you know what, your ad, even though that person didn't click on your ad, they were, they're buying or their decision was influenced by the ad impression that was placed in front of them based on, you know, the campaign that you're running for them. Absolutely. And, you know, coming, you know, so anybody that comes from a, from a, you know, a direct marketing realm and, you know, specifically, you know, like direct mail might be familiar with a matchback analysis. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we've done a, we've, we've kind of adapted a matchback analysis to uh, do a couple of things. Uh, our, our favorite way to do a matchback is what we call a differential matchback. So go back to a list of 100,000 people and we send ads to 50,000 of them. Well, you know, if all of them got direct mail, uh, we're going to do a matchback on all of them. And the 50,000 who got direct mail, we're going to come up with what their response rate was, with what their average spend was, and get all of those metrics. And then the 50% who got direct mail plus IP targeting, we're going to come up with what their response rate was, uh, calculate their spend, and, and be able to, you know, get to numbers like the people we targeted spent 40% more, uh, you know, and, you know, the people we targeted were 30% more likely to buy. You start to multiply those numbers out as, uh, you know, increased revenue per targeted individual. You can then get to, uh, you can then divide that by the aggregate cost of the, you know, ad campaigns associated with it, and you get to return on ad spend. And, and that's a, uh, you know, assuming that you've got a, a statistically valid sample size, that is by far the best way to measure different ad campaigns because, you know, ultimately, you know, it doesn't matter if it's direct mail, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, if it's email, it doesn't matter if it's, uh, if it's IP targeting. What really matters is I spent $100,000 on an ad campaign, how much incremental revenue did it bring me? And, and, and if, if our, you know, if our tool can't, you know, can't be competitive with other things, then those other things are what you should be spending your money on. Absolutely. So tell us then what would be a typical match rate within an average list? Uh, about fifty percent for residential, about forty percent for um, for businesses, 
And uh, then for venues, for like hotels and those types of things, we're generally running about 90%. Interesting. That's great. So one thing I want to segue now is on your site, of course, you say that you're not a cookie-based solution. And so as a marketer, what's beneficial to us or the consumer with a cookie-free solution? How long do you have? Uh, <laughs> we have as long as you want. <laughs> yeah. So the, the problem with cookies, though, there's a lot of them, but you know, let's start with digital ad fraud. Uh, mm-hmm. About a third of what ad buyers are spending digitally on, uh, on, on ads, uh, that money goes to fraud. Uh, and and you know, th- those numbers are, you know, I mean, those numbers are between eight and twelve billion dollars uh, a year of what advertisers are losing to, you know, syndicated fraud. Most of that fraud is targeted at cookies. So by eliminating cookies, we're we're actually giving you know we're we're inoculating ourselves from that uh, you know that that you know a large percentage of the total fraud that's uh, out in the stratosphere. And the second big issue with cookies is you know everybody else is doing cookies, and mm-hmm. you know so they're they're all targeting this relatively you know uh, this this you know somewhat small pool of people. It's shrinking because people are, are less and less relying on cookies moving forward. A lot of browsers now come with cookies automatically turned off, or people are mm-hmm. opting into things like the "do not track" or "do not follow me" list, uh, you know, within a browser or within you know different uh, different ad networks. So you know, the the pool of people that are cookieable and followable by cookies are shrinking, and and you know, since everybody else is doing this, you know, these cookie-based solutions, what happens is you know, what, you might use three different providers for digital campaigns, but they're all fighting over the same, you know, the same kind of rehashed cookie data. Yeah, um, you know, so, you know, yeah, and, you know, so that, that's another big part of it. And then, you know, the, the, the final piece for me is, you know, when you look at, uh, when you look at results, you know, typically people in the cookie world are, are using cookies to target online behavior. And, you know, just because I, you know, I visit a yacht site or I like yachts on Facebook doesn't mean I'm a yacht buyer. Um, so, you know, what we find is taking real data, you know, data from, you know, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, data providers that have fueled direct mail campaigns, data from people's CRMs, and then onboarding into that and into our system gives us a much more effective and authentic way to reach a real audience that's qualified for the offer. So that's a really interesting thing we want to dig into a little bit there, Stacey. So where do you get the data that allows you to say, okay, so Dave lives at this address and has used this IP within the last uh, 60 or 90 days. Where, where do you get that information? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So what we do is we, we really look at four different data types. Uh, we, we look at, and all of this is opt-in data. Uh, all of this is uh, data that we're, we're aggregating from you know thousands of apps and websites that uh, have gotten permission to use this and provide it for their marketing partners. But, you know, the data really falls into four categories. The first is form fill and or credit card data. Um, you know, and, you know, you fill out a form, you uh, you do a credit card transaction. That data is uh, then available uh, in, in some form for being able to match up uh, an IP address and a home address so that we can then use that to, um, or our, an IP address and a physical address. It doesn't have to be a home address. But be able to use that data for targeting. Um, you know, the second thing that we use is uh, we use you know, general routing and geographic data. So we can look at, uh, you know, how uh, traffic gets from point A to point B on the Internet and then figure out, you know, do these IP addresses make sense for this area? Uh, you know, because you know, there, there is a, a reasonable and, and, you know, decipherable taxonomy for how the Internet works. Uh, you know, the third thing is mobile app data. Uh, and, you know, mobile app data generally comes with, you know, both an IP address and, uh, and a, um, and a location, uh, based off of whether you've got location-based services turned on on that device, uh, and, and accessible via that app. But we can then take that data and, and it gives us another point uh, to, you know, triangulate against, essentially, uh, using some of our algorithms. And you know, then the final point uh, of data is email, uh, and you know, there's there's a lot of data available uh, in, in the kind of email stream that uh, allows us to get to you know get to you know this kind of you know, this match between a, a, a physical address and an IP address. Very cool. It sounds like you might need to get uh, Edward Snowden on the payroll at some point, right? He could help you out there. You know, you know, I, I don't know that he's uh, he, somebody anybody would want to you know, publicly have on their payroll. Yeah, we would uh, want to keep that quiet. Yeah, yeah. There you go, a consultant. Yeah, there you go. 
something's interesting is that, you know, everyone says everything is about data. I know we talk to a lot of people who do a lot of direct mail and most of them say, listen, it doesn't matter, you know, if you have the best direct mail piece, if you have the best art and the best call to action, if the data that you have on these people isn't good data, you're not mm-hmm. going to have a good campaign. And so the what I really am fascinated about Altoro specifically is that you're actually giving people the opportunity to leverage the data that they've collected on them. You know, I feel like there's, we're asking so much data, we're collecting so much data from people, yet we're not necessarily using it as much as we could in campaigns, you know? And so I, re- I it's just fascinating how you're able to actually use that data that we collect from people and actually, like we were talking about before, serve the right message to the right person at the right time so that when people are seeing this, they're like, wow, that's actually something that I'm interested in. That could actually benefit me. Yeah, it's, it's the difference between data and information. Companies are grounding in data, uh, but being able to take that data and turn it into information that is actionable and usable and, and helps them build their business is, is a really important component of what we do. You know, I, I like to tell clients, uh, you know, I, I like to describe, uh, you know, that there's a triangle uh, of what makes a successful campaign. And that base of the triangle is that, you know, we're going to give you what we believe to be the absolutely best targeting system for, you know, digitally onboarding data and targeting individuals, uh, individuals at businesses, individuals at their home, individuals at a hotel. But th- there's two other components that make a successful campaign. One is the, uh, you know, how good is your offer and your ad? Uh, you know, if you know a lot about these people, but you don't use that in your offer, your ad, then that's really not a very good ad. And then the second component, uh, or, or I'm sorry, the third component, uh, the final leg of that triangle is, um, is you know, how how good is your data? Uh, you know, how good is, you know, did, did you take a group of people that were really likely to buy? And, you know, I'll give you an example uh, from a campaign we did early on with a client. They uh, they wanted, uh, it was a law firm, and they wanted to do, um, they wanted to target people for filing nursing home abuse complaints. And they said, uh, people that file nursing home abuse complaints are, um, uh, are um, between 40 and 60 years old. Uh, the people they wanted to target were 40 to 60 years old. They had a living parent, um, and uh, they were female. And uh, so, you know, they were looking for these 40 to 60-year-old females who were making the decisions for their parents. And by the way, they lived within 10 miles of a low-quality nursing home. So, you know, they were deciding to put their parent in this nursing home that was within 10 miles of their home. So they bought a list. They uh, did direct mail to that list, and we also did IP targeting to that list. Uh, Post-campaign, there were only three conversions, only three nursing home abuse complaints. All three of them were people that got IP targeting plus direct mail. Uh, But, you know, they're like, hey, this, this campaign didn't meet our expectations. So I said, there has to be something wrong with the ads or the data. And, and so I said, let's take a look at it. Let's apply some data science to it and see what it tells us. So, uh, you know, we, we gave it to one of, uh, one of the, one of our analysts, uh, a week later. I went back to him and I said, all right, you were almost right about who your exact client is. And they said, no, 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 we, we were exactly right. I said, nope, you were almost right. And I said, they were 40 to 60 years old. They were female. Uh, they live within 10 miles of a low-quality nursing home. They're like, that's exactly what we told you. I'm like, nope, you picked the wrong low-quality nursing homes. Um, and and, wow. I, and I, I said, here's where your da- here's where your data diverts. Uh, I said, if I look at who you guys have historically worked with, these were low-quality nursing homes. But it appears that you've sued them so much that they are now no longer low-quality nursing homes. Oh wow! That, you know the cost uh, the cost of dealing with you guys was was you know high enough that you know they've cleaned up their act. And, and I wow. said, you know, your data is leading me to this conclusion. Uh, but you know, I, I said you guys you know helped confirm it for me. But you know the thing is, you haven't filed any cases. You know, you've only filed three cases against these guys, and you were filing a lot more cases against them in the past. I said, now I'm going to draw three circles on the map. This is where today's low-quality nursing homes are. Uh, so, you know, what you should do is redo this campaign targeting people that are 40 to 60 years old, female, that live within 10 miles of these places. And what happened? Did they end up doing running the campaign? So they did, and they've done very uh, they've done very well with our system. 
That's great. So actually, I have a question just as a follow up here. We were talking about those three components. um, And one of them is obviously the actual ad. And so I'm curious, and I'm sure listeners are curious to see what are people typically doing with their ads? And are there things uh, or call to actions that are more effective or less effective? and, And what are people doing here that you've seen that's great? Yeah, so some some kind of general best practices are that you want to um, you want to if you're doing direct mail, you want to integrate your your your, your IP targeted your digital ads with your direct mail. And what do I mean by integration? You you want to start serving generally seven to ten days before the DMP and home date, uh, so that you know people are getting you're building some residence with your digital ads. For the direct mail piece, it's going to arrive within the next seven to ten days, um, and then you want to continue to serve seven to ten days after the direct mail piece arrives to take advantage of the residence that you built with the first flight of digital ads and also with the direct mail piece because a lot of times people are still leaving that direct mail piece and you know in, a, in an inbox or something or uh, you know on the on the counter for a couple of days. So you know the other piece to that is you need to integrate the you know the image the message so that what they're getting online matches what they're getting in their physical mailbox if you're and again that's for people pairing with direct mail you know for people that are not pairing with direct mail generally animated ads work better than non-animated ads mm. uh, and that, that still works with direct mail as well but you know one of the one of the things we try to coach clients toward doing is, is at least a split test you know give us a, you know give us an a b test of uh, an animated ad set and a non-animated ad set and let's see which are working better for this audience um, you know the other things that we see that you know make a really successful campaign for people are you know focusing on 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 you know high value offers you know the 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 idea of an ad is to get that person interested to get them in your showroom to get them talking to your sales rep to get them on your website and and a high value offer is going to do that much better than you know than some low value kind of weak call to action so a strong call to action you know say 50% this week only uh is much better than click here to find out more um, and yeah. you know, so those are the types of things we see. We uh, we do a lot of work in higher ed, and uh, one of the things that um, you know that we find is taking you know that the data that our clients and partners know about a student, and then you know again building segments of those students. So you can take a group of students who scored higher than twenty higher than twenty eight on the ACT. You can put an ad in front in their homes that says. If you scored higher than a 28 on the ACT, you qualify for a $20,000 scholarship. Deadline Friday. Click here to uh, click here to find out more. That's a fantastic ad. Uh-huh. Uh, you know that 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 ad works uh, because you know two things. One is you know you're putting it in front of people that you know something about, and you know so they're seeing it. They're like, well, I scored more than 28 on the ACT. Uh, I, I want to find out more about the scholarship. The other thing is since you're doing it at the household level, their parents are very interested in that ad as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it's not just the kids, you know, the parents know what the kid got on the, on the ACT. So all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you've got a couple bites at the apple, whether the kid's interested in the school or not. Now the parents know that that school's offering this kind of scholarship. Uh, you know, maybe that, maybe, you know, they're, they're going to go back and convince the kid to be more interested in that school. Stacy, uh, curious, what are the top, let's say five verticals that you see this utilized in? Is that something that, uh, you know, off the top of your head? Yeah, so um, obviously automotive and higher ed are two that we've already talked about. Uh, healthcare is uh, is a very uh, fast growing vertical for us. You know, everything from uh, helping uh, you know target um, you know uh, new patients. And, and a great example of targeting new patients is our digital new mover product. Uh, you know, we started looking at you know segments of the population that would be really likely to do things. We partnered mm-hmm. with a company to onboard data about people that had recently moved. And, you know, while new mover data is really uh, a big deal for direct mail, it's a several billion dollar component of the direct mail industry, nobody was digitally targeting new movers. So we went out and wrote a patent on the process. We went out and trademarked the name digital new movers. And uh, But you start looking at new movers, they need a new doctor. 
they need a new dentist. Uh, they've disintermediated their relationship with their local urgent care center, with their with their hospital. Uh, you know, so th- th- those are you know those are all you know great you know places or you know, to use like the digital new movers. The other one that kind of surprised me in healthcare is nurse recruitment. You wouldn't believe how much money is being spent to recruit nurses today, mm-hmm. and we've got clients yep. that are spending six, you know spending six figures a month with us to run nurse recruitment campaigns and and target uh, you know target nurses to leave their current employer and come to work for them. So that's automotive, higher ed, healthcare. Uh, political uh, is a big segment for us, but it's obviously very cyclical. Uh, you know, you kind of run, you know, run uh, hot and cold and political. And then, yeah. you know, kind of the final, uh, you know, the, the final segment for us uh, would be finance. You know, uh, getting new uh, new customers for banks, tell, uh, taking existing customers for banks that might maybe only have one product they buy and selling them additional products. Stacy, one one thing I noticed here in the verticals that you mentioned, and I'm wondering if this is true or if this is something I'm just perceiving that's uh, not actually there, but in all of the verticals you listed, there seems to be, uh, maybe with the exception of political, um, there seems to be a high lifetime value for acquiring a customer. Is that is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I would generally say so. Uh, we've you know we've got some uh, we've got some campaigns and you know things that are not as high lifetime value like pizza companies. But you know, again, you, you start thinking about you know if a pizza company's got uh, delivery data on where they've delivered, then you know they've got fantastic data on being able to go back and take people that haven't ordered in the last thirty days and and get them active again. And you know, while you know selling them a single uh, a single pizza or a single dinner is probably twenty or thirty bucks, you know the reality is you know taking somebody and you know that you know had kind of left them and getting them reengaged, you know might be a several hundred dollar uh, additional lifetime value. Uh, but uh-huh. you know, generally, we we do pretty well in the you know what I would call high CPA area, high cost okay. acquisition, and, okay. and that's uh, you know that's an area where where our tool particularly excels. So you mentioned that you typically look at things from an ROAS perspective, return on ad spend. Uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about how you actually quantify success uh, in campaigns that are leveraging IP targeting? What do you look at from your vantage? What do you think is important? Yeah, so uh, I'm actually working on a, on a study right now because I get, um, you know, I, I get clients that get really spun up about click-through rates. And I'm like, I don't understand why you why you're caring so much about click through rate. And and I've taken a bunch of uh, data from different campaigns recently, and I'm working with one of my analysts. And you know, it turns out that campaigns that have really high and really low click through rates are are actually not the highest performing campaigns when we look at who actually you know campaigns that had a high ROAS. And you know, and you know, heuristically, the reason I believe that's true is you know. Something with really low click-through rate is probably an ad that wasn't resonating with the uh, with the customer, and something with a really high click-through rate was probably something that was kind of clickbaity. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is, uh, if I wanted to get the highest possible click-through rate on some uh, on some uh, uh, ads for an auto uh, auto dealer, I'd probably put zombies on them. Uh, in fact, I had <laughs> one of uh, one of my team do do this experiment at one point. You know, he put like some. Uh, he did really cool ads that were gonna, you know, you know, get people to click on them because they were kind of funny and they had a zombie on them. And guess what? People really clicked on them, but nobody bought cars. Uh, and uh, and you know, the the best ads are ones that you know kind of get people to the site based off of here's the offer, not here's you know something funny that got you to come to the site. Uh, and you know, you know, so those be- you know the best campaigns are generally the ones that are kind of uh, you know middle level click through rates. And a mid level click through rate for us is like a 0.2 uh, you know percent CTR, and, and that's mm-hmm. actually about two to three times what the industry average is for uh, a display ad click through rate. So we still see much higher click through rates than the industry average does. Uh, but you know, I'm always fighting the battle with people. They're like, well, I need more clicks or I need a higher click through rate. And I'm like, no, 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 you, you need more sales. 
those are the types of things that we like to measure with clients are, are you know how many incremental sales did we get and how much more likely were people to uh, how much more did people spend uh, once we uh, once we uh, displayed these ads to them um, and and then we can take those and turn those into any of a number of really interesting metrics and also measure you know different groups exposures to different ad sets and look at you know how ad set one worked against ad set two worked against ad set three and, and really get into a very uh, very interesting set of data of how to optimize future campaigns when you say point two um, do you mean a fifth of one percent is that right am I getting the math right yeah 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 that's exactly right okay you know, and, and you know so yeah and again it's one of those things that we look at you know what um, you know how are we really moving the needle uh, for for clients but the average uh, click-through rate on display ads um, across all industries in the United States right now is about a 0.06%. Uh, and that's according to Google. Uh, Google runs uh, some really interesting uh, data based off of their ad server. And uh, then they publish that data. And uh, you, you, can, you can look at it by industry and by different uh, sizes of creative, those types of things. Uh, which is again why why we're very focused on on you know how do we you know how do we prove that something worked and how do we know that it worked and how do we show that it moves sales? Yeah, and what you're saying is, is about a three x uh, uh, over what Google is saying is is kind of their average. Is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really easy for people to get hung up on click through rate, click through rate, response rate, you know, and you get really tied into the data and then you stop, forget that you're really talking about sales here. Are we selling more cars? Are we, you know, generating more revenue from the campaigns? And also, you know, some things that we've noticed just speaking about click through is click through results in a lot of false positives. I feel like, like you were saying with the zombie campaign or even other things that we do that requires people to click through. We notice that sometimes we'll, we're following up with people who clicked on something and they're like, what? You know, I didn't mean to click on that or something like that. And so we notice across other things, even webinar signups or things like that, we've had to change our model where it's, you know what, there's a double opt-in or something like that. So it's not there. It's not producing that false positive and showing you, hey, your campaign did really awesome. But then why is no one actually showing up for the webinar, hypothetically speaking? Yeah, I uh, I had a friend that did some consulting with one of the major internet companies at one point, and they were talking about all of the form fills that they were getting with a uh, with a particular tool they were using. And my friend said, "Well, how many of them are real?" And, and and they said, "Well, they're all real." And he goes, "No, that can't possibly be true." And uh, and they're like, "Well, how would you test that?" So uh, you know, he's in a meeting with them. He's their consultant, and he goes, "These are the form fills." And they're like, "Yeah." So I just started calling people. I was like, "Did you fill out this form recently?" And, you know, "No, I did not." Uh, you know, so after a couple of those, he's like, "All right, well, well, we know they're not a hundred percent real." Uh, so now the real question is, you know, what percent of them are real? And you know, so you know, when you look at things like uh, you know form fills or click throughs or those types of things, you know, again, you know, we're, we're going back to you know, there's uh, you know, there's there's all this junk out there, and there's all this clutter, and and how do you unclutter the uh, unclutter things from a digital advertising perspective? And for us, it's you know, hey, here's the group of people we targeted, and did they buy more from you? Um, and, and, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'll explain that to people sometimes. They're like, well, that sounds so simple. And I'm like, it, it is. Uh, but, you know, the reality is, you know, most digital campaigns simply can't measure that because they're targeting uh, an online behavior or a pixel or a cookie or, you know, but they don't know who those people are. You know, since we're targeting a group of people and we know who they are, it's kind of easy to say how to, you know, you know, as long as you're collecting data on the back end. And again, that goes back to what we were talking about, higher CPA and kind of bigger ticket items. Uh, well, you know, part of that is you know, the bigger ticket your item is, the more likely you are to collect, uh, you know, address of who your client is. You know, it, it's tough for us if we, uh, you know, if we go out to a company, you know, let's say it's McDonald's. And, uh, you know, McDonald's is like, well, you know, uh, you know, you're, uh, I want to hire a click-through, right? Well, you know. It's tough for us to say, hey, McDonald's, you know, uh, we'll be able to prove more people are buying from you. Well, how do you do that? Because you don't really know who showed up at McDonald's and bought a cheeseburger and paid with Right, cash. right. Not yet, at least. <laughs> that technology yeah, yeah, may come I mean, at some point. And, 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 and you know, we're, we're thinking about that problem. There's other people oh, thinking yeah. about that problem. We, yep. we, we filed uh, – 
filed five patents since we started the company. One of them has been issued, four of them are pending. Uh, but you know, we're, we're continually thinking about innovation, how to you know, build for a, a future state that doesn't exist today. Now, Stacey, just out of intellectual curiosity here, when you say that some of those form uh, fills that you mentioned a moment ago were, were fake or false, uh, what was actually filling those forms out? So uh, you can have bots that do those. Um, have you guys ever watched the show Silicon Valley? Um, you know what? I saw one of the episodes. I think I saw the first one. You, you did, yeah. Mackenzie? No? no, I haven't actually oh, okay. seen it, but I know what it is. Yep. There's a, there's a great episode in Silicon Valley where they're uh, trying to fake the uh, number of daily active users on their website. <laughs> so they go to uh, what's called a, a click farm in Bangladesh yeah. and, uh, and or Russia, uh, and, maybe. You know, this, yeah, or, or Russia. Uh, you know, any of yeah, you know, but you know, I mean, these, these exist in Africa and Asia, all yeah. over the world, where you know people are you know sitting around making two to five dollars a day to. Uh, click on sites and copy and paste information into forms and, and fill out the CAPTCHA. Um, and if you don't have a CAPTCHA, then, oh my gosh, I mean, you're going to get so much, you know, form fill spam anyway, it's crazy. Um, but, you know, the, the, the reality is since most advertisers are measuring either click-through rate or form fills, most people that are delivering fraudulent ads want to make sure that they're delivering click-through rate and form fills. So, you know, it's, you know so, so they've become very adaptive at trying to make sure that the traffic they're delivering looks good. Yep. That's awful. But a good, uh, a good thing for everyone to know. Yeah, yeah. definitely a yeah. good reminder. Yeah. So just now, now that we've, you know, heard about Altoro and heard about the product and how it can be beneficial to marketers and um, people, I want to talk a little bit about something that I read, which was that I, which I felt really fascinating because I felt kind of an emotional connection of the, of the way that um, our culture is set up here at Mindfire. But I read an article about how at um, El Toro, you have a culture where it's like, you know, you are the actual person doing the code. So rather than um, being this, you know, being a company where um, you're working on some piece of code, you're actually, everyone that actually works for you is making some sort of impact. And that's kind of how it is here at Mindfire. Everyone, no matter if you're in marketing or engineering or sales or whatever, everything that we do is in the moment impacting our company. And so how have you been able to foster an environment at El Toro where people uh, feel personally responsible and driven and where, they, where they're able to actually get in there and get their hands dirty? Well, there's a couple of things, and uh, you know, when when you look at like our development team, uh, I, I often tell developers that you know there are two types of developers in the world. There are people that that work on APIs. There are people that work on code written and invented by smart people, and that's fine. I mean, you you can make a lot of money working at a big company just administering a uh, an SAP system or administering some homegrown financial system or whatever, or there are people that that invent the code that other people work on, mm -hmm. and that's us. Uh, you know, we 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 invent new new things. We write algorithms. We patent the work that we do, uh, and and yeah. You know, so you know, there, there's a yin and a yang. Uh, you know that uh, you know if you you know if if you don't want to work hard and you don't want to be intellectually challenged, then uh, this is probably not the place for you. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you if you want to come in and you want to be the you know one of the best people at uh, you know that you know that was in your graduating class at writing code and <clears throat> you're kind of really peeling back the onion and being amazing, then this is the kind of place that you want to be. Uh, and you know I, I have that conversation with a lot of prospective hires, uh, and you know and it generally works out pretty well for us because you know even if the person says hey that's not the place for me. I'd rather know up front. I would rather know, hey, you know, I you know, hey, I was kind of looking for a job where I can skate and make a lot of money. Well, well, thank you for telling me that this isn't that place. Um, you know, so you know, we're very selective on the front end. About 10% of the people we interview uh, are people that we ultimately hire. Uh, but by being that selective, we've got extraordinarily low turnover. Uh, we've only lost four employees in the last four years, and we currently have 43 employees. Um, you know, so you start doing the math on that. You know, that's a turnover rate in the like three to four percent range on an annual basis. I mean, it's really, really low uh, compared to just about any place else. 
And and I think it's because you know we we give people a chance to do really cool things. We give them a chance to grow very rapidly, and and we we treat this very much like a family. Um, you know, we've got uh, one of our uh, one of our employees is competing in a uh, in a pageant this weekend. She uh, was a two-time runner-up for Miss Kentucky, and there's I guess uh, this is like her one of her last years of pageant eligibility, but it's not the Miss Kentucky pageant, <laughs> something else. But we we actually made a video. You know, she took today off, but we did made a uh, good good luck video and sent Aww. it to her today. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, but, you know, everybody, uh, you know, kind of, you know, jumped in the video and, you know, different groups, uh, you know, gave her different messages, that kind of stuff. But, you know, this is that kind of environment that, uh, you know, when somebody's doing something awesome or amazing, we want to support them. And when somebody's struggling with something, we also want to support them. I love and, that. And, you know, I, yeah. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of the, the culture here where we call ourselves a family here, too. So I thought that was a great parallel. Sometimes a dysfunctional family, but a family nonetheless. Yeah, we all actually well, yeah, we all got yeah, together yeah. this morning and watched the inauguration, as an example. Well, well, I'll, so I'll t- so we're making the video, and and yeah, I like to keep things kind of kind of fun around the office, and we have three new employees that started on Monday. So I saw one of uh, one of them uh, being filmed. So I kneeled down next to him and uh, said, "Is it okay if I, you know, join your message?" And uh, so he's like, "Yeah, that's fine." And then, uh, you know, I, yeah, I like, uh, I said, "Is it okay if I rub your head for good luck while I?" Join <laughs> yeah, that's okay. And uh, you know, so uh, yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it was, it was a very funny uh, type of thing. And, and I said, you know, this ever happened at your old employment, uh, your, your old job? And he's like, just once. And I'm like, well, I hope once. it worked out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I can, t- you know, I can tell you know, it's his first week. But, he, 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 you know, he's got the kind of humor and the kind of personality that will fit in here. And, and But it's, you know, we're, we're very much like uh, like an extended family. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I like to, uh, you know, think that uh, our team is, you know, growing uh, together. We're, we're kind of experiencing life together and we're building a pretty awesome company while we're doing it. Awesome. Well, we have just really enjoyed our conversation with you. It's been really fun, really informative. I know our listeners are going to get a lot of value out of um, your product and the different things that you coached on here today. So thank you so much. We like to ask people or we like to tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you. So if someone wanted to reach out, uh, what's the best way to do so? So best way is uh, co- uh, go to eltoro e l t o r o dot com. Um, you know, as soon as you get there, we'll know all kinds of things about you because <laughs> that is after all our business. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, you know our, all of our contact information is on there. You can uh, easily get a t- uh, get in touch with us, and uh, you know we uh, we, we love uh, meeting and working with new people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. Uh, We really appreciate your time. I know our listeners do too. And it's been great. Thank you, Stacey. Wowza. Wowza. That was cool. That was really cool. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stacey. And uh, as always, we will summarize these uh, conversation highlights in the show notes on our blog. Mm -hmm. So mindfiring.com. And then you can find our blog from there. And also, what if folks want to run a campaign and actually try this out? Yep, how so should they How should they reach out to us? If they want to run a campaign or have any questions, feel free to hit us up at hello, hello. At, hello at mindfireinc.com. So again, reach out to us at hello at mindfireinc.com. We're happy to answer questions, um, talk about how you can run a campaign, try this out. We'll also then put Stacy's uh, contact information uh, there so that people can reach out if they want for that. Yep. Awesome. So with that, folks, thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed today's session and we look forward to seeing you next week. Yep. Alrighty. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Pixels and Ink podcast with Mackenzie Farsheed and Dave Rosendahl. For more information and to get the resources mentioned in this episode, visit mindfirestudio.com slash blog. We look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, keep testing your marketing to find out what works for you and your business and get ready for your leads and revenue to grow. We'll see you in the next episode. What's her name? Melania. Melania. No, Melania is Trump's wife, right? What's her name? Mel- what music? The, the, the lady. Welcome to Pixels and Ink. Oh, Melanie. Melanie? Forgot about her. Okay. Yeah. Bada bing. Okay, Max going off.
the you reservation just said it was right the now. Unnoodle. The unnoodle. She's the going off the, the rails here. It's the pizza smell. Okay. Uh, Which is actually the bathroom. <laughs> she has that disease where she mixes up smells. Okay. Mm, I, I like pizza. <laughs> Bada bing. <laughs>